Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. My guest this week is my good friend, Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, also known by many as the Bug Lady. She's an ornamental entomologist specializing in integrated pest management. Suzanne has been involved in the green industry for more than 25 years with a primary focus on biological controls and using pesticides properly. She is a graduate of the University of Florida with degrees in both entomology and environmental horticulture. Suzanne has been on the podcast multiple times, and I highly suggest folks go back and listen to some of her other podcasts if you haven't already. This podcast, though, is a two-part series where we discuss some of the latest research in cannabis and hemp from a recent invite-only conference she attended, one of the biggest topics being viruses and cannabis. Now on to the show. But one thing I want to mention for growers is like guardian, getting back to guardian mite spray, because these products aren't really regulated, um, we never, people, growers were using it thinking it was organic, not realizing they were spraying, was it abamectin or ivermectin? Yeah, basically um, Avid, Avamectin. It's also known as Minx so, 2 was in there. So there was Avid mixed in and we didn't know it. They were sending out samples to everyone. So, so many people contaminated their grows with, with Avid without even realizing it. But, you know, the product obviously worked really, really well. Um, and so you're, you're just trusting this company's word until someone does independent testing. And it wasn't until a grower in Oregon failed an organic grower for having avid on their crop and they're like there's no way you know we haven't used anything except for this guardian mite spray that they tested it and found out and the guy got in trouble um frankly not in as much trouble as i thought he should have but um it's a good lesson for for growers with these 25b products to just be really careful um but on that note suzanne um a lot of growers all organic guys i see push back against using mineral oils um, they don't want to use a petroleum based product, which I, I can understand. Um, though technically, you know, it's still mined from the earth <laughs> to a certain extent. I mean, um, if you want to talk about upcycling, it's a byproduct. I mean, and I mean, I get it. Believe me. I mean, we buy a hundred percent wind energy for our house. We pay more to have wind energy at our place so that, you know, we're not paying for coal and oil and, you know, we just bought um, a hybrid electric pickup because, you know, we, we I get it. But at the same time, I, you know, get a little, you know, it's OK to, you know, drive your, you know, F-350 everywhere every day if you don't need a truck. And, you know, but they're going to get upset about using a minimal amount of a byproduct from the petroleum industry. Do they not? I mean, I guarantee you they use Ziploc baggies. And it's just weird how we've got obsessed with this one little thing. Um, you know, uh, or do they not use any other plastics in their production facility? Do they not use hoses? Do they not use drip line? I don't see them bailing on those. And those are all petroleum products. Sure. It's, it's everywhere. Um, but let's, are there, what are some examples of other options growers could consider if they weren't comfortable using stuff oil X or mineral oils in their garden? Well, um, the, I know you, the two oils we're testing oh, right now, I'll let you know. Um, but until the triers are done, 
I can't, you know, I don't have answers yet. The, you know, first thing we're doing is phytotoxicity on poinsettias because they're, again, the most sensitive. And then we're also looking at efficacy on um, like Lewis mites, which is a type of spider mites. Um, and then um, we're also looking at some white fly stuff right now. So we're slowly getting these products tested um, because uh, many of my large or some of my larger Ornamental facilities actually have R&D departments that can do trials and research stuff because they kind of have these rules of growers just can't take a product and go spray it at the facility until it clears the R&D department for phytotoxicity and efficacy testing. So looking specifically at other oils, um, I, I know like neem oil, karanja oil, are a couple options. Yeah, and there's um, rosemary we've talked oil. about why. I mean, there are other oils out there for sure. It's just they get really expensive really fast. If you just have a few plants, it's not going to mean much to you. I mean, it's, you know, you're okay with paying that price. You know, a lot of in my head, I'm used to thinking about pennies, you know, of cost and having to mm -hmm. keep costs down on everything. And so that's why I'm always thinking about the economics of it. But if you're a home hobby grower or a smaller production facility, it's not going to cost you that much more to use like tetracurb, uh, rosemary oil. Okay. And then with the neem oil, you do need to wait a little longer before reintroducing beneficials versus some of these other options based on the research you've seen. It depends. There's just so neem oil is so variable and that's part of the problem. Mm. And I'm still a little, you know, gun shy after the pesticide contamination issues that came up with neem and azadiractin a couple years ago. Um, you know, I just I, and and more likely to have phytotoxicity issues with neem. So basically what happened was the neem tree in India had gotten sprayed with a very old pesticide that we don't even use here in no, the United States. No, we use States, them here somehow... still. I thought you said it was something that was just so rare mm -hmm. over here. That's no, how they it was, were able to track uh, it down. There were several different products. They hit for bifenthrin, um, I think acephate, which is orthene. Um, and orthene is still oh. used here in the United States. But the, the theory is that the trees are because it wasn't like with the with the guardian mitocide issue, the concentration was so high in there. They were opening the bottle, pouring Avid in and, you know, doing that. The levels in the neem and the azadiraction oh, were froze so- froze for a second, Suzanne. Um, looks like the internet went out, but essentially what you're saying is they were pouring the Avid into the bottle based on the concentration, so. Am I back? That makes sense to me. Am I back? You are back now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Where the, the levels that were found in these products and, you know, it's been debated what happened, you know, was it contamination at the bottling plants? Were they bottling bifenthrin and then they switched over to bottle neem because it was very low levels. Mm. Um, I mean, where the trees spray, you know, there's because if you want to go down a rabbit hole of scary pesticides, go look at what goes on in India with pesticides. Like, one of the worst stories I ever read is they sprayed tea fields and then elephants went in there and ate some of the tea and it killed the elephants. Oh, that is awful. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an edible crop. Uh, th too. This is this weird thing that, you know, oh, we're not going to spray stuff oil X, but we'll buy neem oil from India. When you look at the environmental stuff, there is horrific, you know, mm -hmm. 
I mean, you've got to pick and choose so, your battles. You can't be, you know, perfect at everything all the time, environmental and everything. But it's just weird to me that there's been this pushback and it was kind of started by one particular group of people on using Suffoil. And, you know, you're talking about using a 1% in a gallon of water, which is a very small amount as needed. Um, I'm not saying, neem, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm not saying that stuff oil is for everything, but for, you know, again, hemp, russet mite and spider mites, it's a great product. You can do targeted knockdowns. It's cheap. Um, but again, with anything you do, there is an environmental impact. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, like neither of us, work for or sell no. stuff oil or no. it's a it's a brand product you can also buy it um even on amazon as monterey garden or monterey horticultural oil yeah. um th that's its other branding if you're a small homeowner grower um i've tried to sell it i frankly can't <laughs> i can't get it at a price to where i could resell it so um but i think it's a good product and so i'd recommend it we that's why Suzanne recommends it and Suzanne's the reason I recommend it is just because there's a lot of research around it to support it. Right. Um, but we were talking at MJ BizCon about some of the other products that are out there that are like enzyme based or things like that. And we were talking about one in particular and you're like, oh, that's primarily citric acid. Can you touch on that a little bit in terms of how that works or what? Well, if that might be an option for folks that are, you know, wanting to move away from more traditional pesticide options? Yes. Um, I mean, I kind of go back to my default comment of if it's such an amazing product, why is cannabis the only industry that uses it and it is sold to? I mean. So you, you would, could it be the price point? No. Oh my God. Citric acid I mean, is it, cheap. It's in like everything. I mean, Use it. Oh, I just mean like uh, if you're talking about a product that's only in cannabis, could it be because it can't be made affordably enough for ornamentals? Oh my gosh. But it's still effective. Would you like to – the price of ornamental pesticides is insane these days. These newer designer pesticides are so expensive, so expensive. Um, but by keeping the prices super high, the growers don't overuse them. If something's cheap, people do it over and over and over and use it again. You crank that price up and then people are very limited and then it makes the product have a longer shelf life and it doesn't get overused. Oh, because insects don't develop resistance as quickly? Because mm -hmm. like oh, the Sultan, you're only allowed on the label, I can't remember, it's, I think it's tw two or maybe three times an entire crop cycle, are you allowed to spray that product? You cannot come in and spray that once a week. You One, you can't afford it. And number two, the label will not allow it. And that way, this product has persisted on the market for years without any resistance issues, where products that once they go generic and people can buy very cheap versions of them, like a metacloprid, um, like synthetic pyrethrins because the price point is so low people just spray them spray them spray them, and then we have a lot of resistance issues so high prices are a way to keep people from overusing the products on those designer pesticides also remember like at least 10 million dollars at least to develop that product where if you're making a citric acid rosemary you know sunflower oil you know, in your kitchen, 
you don't have $10 million development in that. It's, 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 you look, if you actually look at the percentage of active in those, what we call salad dressing products, um, even though salad dressing can be very tasty, um, you know, and then price it out, you, you can see the, the markup there on, on those. And it's not because they're putting that money into R and D to develop new products. Um, it's just, I mean, is there research though on citric acid and is there, what is the mechanism of action I think around citric acid? It's, I, I, I've not seen any research yet. Um, not saying it's not out there. Um, but I haven't gone down that rabbit hole because I will tell you, we did, test one of the popular citric acid products at one of my ornamental growers and we fried our plants and we're like, yeah, we're done. Um, it, it, it did okay. too much at the label rate, just labeled rate too much phytotoxicity. Yeah. Now okay. the thing is, is with cannabis, cannabis, it's a, it's a hardy plant. It can handle stuff. Ornamental crops cannot handle it. It's pretty resilient. It can handle repeated oil sprays. Um, you know, it's, 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 pretty hard to cause phytotoxicity with it. Um, and I mean, it's a, it's a pretty forgiving crop compared to orchids, poinsettias, pansies, um, you know, lettuce, things like that. Um, so overall, because remember, you know, I'm not just working in cannabis, I'm working in multiple cropping systems. Um, and, you know, trying to find things that, um, can be used safely throughout multiple crops. You know, if if spraying a citric acid product works for you, you see efficacy, you know, use it. Uh, you know, if something works for you, I just don't have a lot of faith because of the damage I've seen and not as good as efficacy as I would like to see. So you're saying it may kill some, but not all of a target. Yeah, pest. well, it's also going to be spray coverage, just like anything else. It's it's going to depend on the sprayer you use. And one of the things I see in cannabis is, again, cannabis farms or production facilities tend to be smaller. You've got a monoculture. You've got a guy going there and spraying, and he can really almost wash those plants off in some facilities. Not, not the larger facilities, but in a lot of the smaller mid-sized ones where... Because of the structure, the way cannabis is, it's easy to get into the canopy um, to get the undersides of the leaves where you don't necessarily get that in other crops and you don't have the time to put into spring like you do. Um, and I do think a lot of efficacy we see in cannabis is the washing action of just the, the water carrier just blasting the, the pests off the plant in certain situations. Hmm. There, okay. there was a semi, I don't want to say famous, um, study done, and they looked at traditional pesticides, microbial pesticides, and water sprays on, I think it was 12 plants. So very small amount of plants, easy to get good spray coverage. Again, water, biopesticides, and conventional pesticides, same efficacy for controlling Western flower thrips. Because of the really washing action of the water, I kind of got into it with a researcher, a touch on it, because, you know, go spray five acres and see if you get the same results. And you won't because you can't get that kind of spray coverage on large acreage. If you have a few plants, you absolutely can. And you just can't on large acreage. And so that's why you get different results. And it's all based on spraying and spraying technique and sprayers. 
Makes sense. Yeah. No, that, that's great. Um, and a couple spray companies that we like, uh, Dram, who's been on the show, makes excellent sprayers. Their water breaker watering wand is awesome. Um, uh, and actually, uh, Kurt Becker, I had asked him in a in a webinar with you, what other options are there, you know, for, cause Dram, Dram sprayers are expensive. Um, he mentioned Birchmeyer is another company that he liked that made a good, good sprayer too. So throwing that out there for people, but a good sprayer is expensive, but it's well worth it. It will um, pay for itself. Kind of coverage. It will pay for itself. Cause I've had growers saying that products, stuff oil is the perfect one. Stuff oil doesn't work. Stuff oil doesn't work. Well, what are you spraying with? And either they're using a paint sprayer or they're using an herbicide sprayer. It's something they just bought down at Home Depot or Lowe's that is designed for lower pressure and larger particle size with, so you don't get dripped. Cause that's what you want with herbicides. And that's what most homeowners want. But I've had those growers that say stuff oil doesn't work. And once they move to a dram like backpack sprayer, now they're getting the results. The, the pesticide didn't change. It was the sprayer changed and particle size change. And that really can make a difference. And again, I'm just going to re-say it again because there's this vicious rumor I get paid by Bioworks and I do not get paid by Bioworks. I don't have any... Um, financial affiliation. I don't take kickbacks. I have spent my entire career working. I'm good at being poor because I don't take kickbacks on products. Yeah, they uh, they, they have a nice lineup of, of products for sure. Um, when you mentioned the sprayers though, it made me think, cause I did some just, you know, direct microscopy at my house looking at uh, compost teas through sprayers. So before it went through a sprayer and after, and we found like certain sprayers definitely affected the microbes. Or I, I took a look at an atomizer years ago and, and looked at it. And basically you can see the damage that sprayers do to microbial products, depending on the sprayer. Um, so it's fairly important when we're spraying microbial products, oils, all of these things that we have the right equipment for that spray, or we may not be getting the efficacy that we think we're getting. Yep. Yep, yep. Michael Brownbridge at Vineland Research and Innovation has done some of that work, but he's looking at more commercial size sprayers and looking at thermal foggers and things like that. Um, one of the ways they tested um, how microbial stuff went through sprayers is you can go on Amazon and you can buy PDA plates um, that are sterile and then you can set your plates out and you can spray your spray over the top of it and cap it. And then in 24, 48 hours, um, your microbes will grow on that plate to know if they're alive or not. It, yeah. So if you did it like Bavaria bassiana, you know, you should start seeing lots of little super, super white fuzzballs growing on that plate, um, you know, in, in a quickly, um, you know, to know they're there. If you're, you're doing metarhizium, um, you're gonna see, you know, like a, a blue green kind of fuzzy growing. So this is why it's important to know your microbes, know, know all that stuff, but you, you can easily test them with those PDA plates from Amazon. So. And speaking of Bavaria, we talked recently, there's a pretty popular organic company out there selling Bavaria. And, uh, you went and actually looked at the rates on it and found it was so low there was no way you could get efficacy with it yet they're selling a ton of it. So same sort of regulatory issues around biostimulants. Right. And EPA biopesticides. Yeah. Um, well, the 
biopesticides are regulated, biostimulants currently are not really regulated, but the EPA is going to change that because everybody is cheating, basically. They're taking biopesticides like Bavaria and Isaria and then diluting them. And then on the side, they'll make insecticidal claims, but in writing, they won't give you any claims and really any information. It's really, really important to be looking at spore counts on that product um, to make sure, um, and this is this is a whole nother presentation. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I've given a couple talks on this um, around the country about how to look at the spore counts, know where you need to be, where they've shown what spore numbers you need to be at for killing certain pests and blah, 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 blah. Um, so just, you know, do, do your comparison um, between EPA registered microbials and non-EPA registered microbials on like Bavaria and look at the numbers and that's telling right there. Yeah. And I've seen this too on the heavy metal side with soil companies. Um, some of these companies claim to be really transparent, but then when, and the tests that they're publishing in that they're doing in house look quite good, but then I'll have a grower fail for heavy metals and we test the product independently and it comes back totally different than that one test that they showed on, you know, on Instagram. So you really have to do your due diligence around this because companies that are not registering products are not being regulated. Mm -mm. And if they're not being regulated, you're just trusting that that company is doing what they're saying they're doing. And you know, that on, as a grower, that's, that's sort of on you at a certain point. Did I tell you about the recent herbicide scandal I heard about? No. So when I was in California two weeks ago, I think it was, um, I was talking to some of the Department of Ag people, and apparently a company out of Florida was selling an organic herbicide. Of course it's Florida. <laughs> but they sold it to a lot of California growers, and it was working so amazing. And so amazing that it kind of caught the attention of some of the regulatory people. So they got some product and sampled it. I think they said it was I can't remember, 20 or 40% glyphosate in it. Oh, geez. Mm -hmm. And so. And this was an organic herbicide? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so scary. Yep. Um, I hate that. Yeah. And now you've got these organic farms that have sprayed Roundup, not knowing it was. And this goes back to you better check your products. You know, it would be great if you could trust people, but. Not everybody, but a lot of people suck, and they're not looking out for your best interests. And here you had a a small organic company, and it has really screwed a lot a lot of organic farmers. I don't know what the resolution is going to be to this, because you know the farmer is unknowingly sprayed Roundup. So according to you know the regulatory yeah. stuff they have to lose their certification but they didn't do it on purpose but at the end of the day was roundup sprayed on that soil yes and so it has to lose its certification even though it's not their fault you know but is it three years three you years. have to be completely clear yeah three years yeah so they would they would send them back three years well the other thing too if you if you and this doesn't necessarily apply to cannabis because you aren't organically certified but if you um are going to apply anything because we have people reach out to us regarding like compost tea or um, you know, humic acids and things like that, that maybe don't have an organic certification. I always say like, don't, don't use that product 
put me in touch with the certifier, get that product approved before you ever buy it or apply it to your to your property because of what you're talking about right now. It's it's a big concern. Yes. You want that certifier to sign off on it. And and that's usually not an issue, but you you want to make sure that everything's kosher before you uh and- and I will Move say, you know, it. Omri is one of the bigger third-party certifiers, and a lot of people, you know, say it's, you know, a bunch of crap that, that you just pay them off. I will tell you, because my husband's product is Omri listed, granted, they are a huge pain in the ass, but they regularly test his product. They need samples of his product. They test it for heavy metals. They test it for all the stuff, and... You know, I'm actually surprised how often they want to test biodegradable pots, but they do it. And William's got to pay for all of this, but they, they're doing their job. Um, so they do follow well, through with the testing. I didn't, I didn't know about that. Oh, oh, my God. I can tell you some stories. But, you know, me as a consultant makes me feel better as being married to William. I'm like, why do they do this to William all the time? But they're just, you know, being no, thorough. It's, it's good. Yeah, we need that regulation. It's a big issue. Like a lot of the companies I see selling fertilizer haven't registered their products because I go and look mm-hmm. at WSDA, CDFA, and or Omri, and you know they're just skating under the radar, mm-hmm. and so they don't have that kind of regulatory oversight. But anyway, we've been talking for a long time here. I need to let you go. We didn't even. We did say we wanted to talk about. Didn't even poster. finish going through my notes from the lecture because you had so many questions. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. Okay, well, do you want to hit a few more? Let highlights? me just hit a few highlights. Podcast into um, okay, so sorry. that's okay. Uh, it's all right. I mean, you know us; we can talk for days about this stuff. Um, so, hemp russet mite research at Colorado State. Um, they basically found, and no, no big surprise here. Uh, Suffoil X did very well in their trials. Uh, so did Tetracurb, which that's that rosemary oil, which um, that was kind of nice to see. Um, so again, for hemp russet mite, they got good results there. I would like to see that replicated a couple more times on that. Um, and they also found that sulfur did well. And we all know that um, sulfur uh, does kill hemp russet mite. There's no question about that. But um, I was actually doing some reading the other day that um, there seems to be like this boomerang effect that they see in outdoor sulfur use where it actually can create more spider mite issues after sulfur applications, which is kind of interesting. That's a Mm. whole nother uh, rabbit hole that you can go down. The other really interesting can, thing, um, there's... Before you move on from sulfur, yeah. can you just give your quick 30-second PPE <laughs> talk around sulfur for growers who may not have heard it and are using sulfur or thinking about using sulfur? Okay, so there is no doubt sulfur kills and works well on powdery mildew and it kills and works well on hemp russet mite. I am not debating that ever. I just... With sulfur, if you use the indoor labeled greenhouse product, currently what is on the market has a 24-hour re-entry time. So after you've applied it, you're not supposed to go back in there for 24 hours uh, for for human safety. Um, I realize that that, that's a lot of time um, for a facility, but that's the the label is the law and that's what's on the label. 
It also can mess up uh, some of your beneficial insects where sulfur is not a good insecticide. It can be a good miticide, but not necessarily a good insecticide there. Where oil products generally will either have a zero or a four hour REI, they can kill beneficials on contact, but basically back to, you know, Sufoil X or products like that, once they're dry, you can re-release your beneficials and you're right back um, into it. Um, also, you have to be very careful about the timing of sulfur applications. I recently had a grower who they used it in vegetative, but used it, I think, too many times. And because of the persistence in the environment indoor, their flower ended up tasting like sulfur, even though they never applied it actually in flower. Um, so you do have to be... And you're talking about spraying mm -hmm. sulfur right now. Yeah. Okay, because I think there's still people out there burning sulfur. Which is illegal. There is no, in the United States, there is no legal product for vaporizing or burning sulfur. It is absolutely illegal in the U.S. There's one product left registered in Canada. And I assume that's for safety reasons, health concerns? I assume so too, but nobody wants to register a vaporizing sulfur product anymore in the U.S. It is not that it is there's no law saying it's illegal. There are no registered products. All the registered products, they the companies doing them dropped their labels. They weren't staying. Uh, they weren't going to keep doing that. That. Also, I've heard enough stories from like the 60s and 70s of greenhouses burning down because of sulfur pots. Mm. Oh, I did it back in the day. Yeah. You know, and looking back, I, you know, I think I just held my breath and went in and unplugged it and then closed the door again. But looking back now, I would wear a respirator. Well, I wouldn't do it now, but if I did, I would wear a respirator and be a lot more careful with my health now that I'm older. Um, so word of caution to folks around sulfur. Um, okay. Sorry. No, that's fine. Keep going. I keep interrupting. No, no, that's fine. I mean, and also once you use sulfur, you can't go back to an oil for a period of time. Again, depending on indoor, outdoor, rain, there's so many variables in there. Um, so I'm not, again, not debating whether sulfur kills mites. Yes, we know it does. I just think there's so many other issues around using it that I think in the long run, most facilities are better off with an oil product for mites. And the research is showing that these oils can work just as well as sulfur. And also kill mildews and powdery mildew, things like that too. Yeah, well, sulfur does powdery mildew, but so does Sufoil X. Uh, PM's on the label. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, and so does water too. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. All right, keep okay. going. Okay, so um, <laughs> again, shout out to um, Olivia Carter. She's a student at Colorado State, and I'm very interested in following um, her career. I really enjoyed talking with her. She has actually been looking at how hemp russet mites re reproduce differently on different cultivars of hemp. And we all know, I mean, obviously everybody knows that cultivars of cannabis and hemp are very different, even though it's the same genus specific epithet um, on there. But she's actually looking at how hemp russet mite, um, and she looked at one was called unicorn and elite was the other. And so on elite in a week, hemp russet mites could lay 20 eggs, but unicorn only laid four eggs. 
So there was a huge difference in the um, reproductive capabilities depending on which cultivar it was. And obviously these plants are grown under the same conditions in a research control environment there. They also found um, that it took a lot longer for hemp russet mites to mature on unicorns and actually did not live as long on on unicorn as it did elite. So if you're a hemp russet mite, you're going to want to live on elite because you can have more babies, your life cycles faster, you'll live longer. Whereas there's something different about this unicorn uh, cultivar of hemp that they don't perform as well on. And I mean, we see this where you go, I've been to facilities and you have this table of cannabis and it's crusty with hemp russet mite and the cultivar right next to it doesn't have them on it. And yes, mm -hmm. they're in different, um, different containers. So in theory, yes, you could have something different, but generally the plants are treated the same in a facility, but there is something to cultivars that these mites and it's like, so when someone says to me, well, you know, how fast does hemp resident might reproduce on cannabis? It depends. It depends on the cultivar, the plant. It depends on nutrition. There's so many variables in there. There's not one, you know, specific quick answer there. So that was that makes sense. nice to see that actually being done. And she's actually, there's a whole bunch of work she's going to be working on where they're actually looking at the genome of hemp russet mites. So they'll be able to, you know, take a plant sample and test it to see if they detect the genome of hemp russet mite in the sample. I don't know if that's ever going to become an affordable test method for growers, but um, they they are working out that process. So there's some real interesting stuff coming down the lines. Um, I mean, there was so much stuff at this meeting. It's the best meeting I have been to in a couple years. I learned so much from these researchers. And it's really great because now it's my job to take what I've learned there and take it to the growers. But also give credit to these researchers because they deserve a lot of praise for the hours of sitting and counting hemp russet mites on a plant. I mean, who wants that job? Counting how many eggs the hemp russet, I mean, that takes dedication. Um, and, you know, these- can you, can you say the name of the show again for folks that were- Well, it's not a show. It's, it's a conference or and it's conference? invitation only. Sorry. Oh, that's right. You had told me that because I had said I wanted to go the next year. Okay. Now. All right. Yeah, no, they're, 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 and that, and that's the thing because it's, it's for researchers to network, um, and, and again, discuss their research. Um, and also there's been some funding where we're actually going to be making some educational videos. Um, I'm on the, the team that's working on, um, like hemp pests, um, of stuff, but this is a, um, this is a funded project through a grant. Uh, for researchers and and um, they invited me, which I felt very honored to be invited to be part of this. Cool. Was there so? Was there other research at the show highlights that you wanted to touch on here? No, those were the main ones. I mean, again, we could go on okay. forever, but um, of course, <laughs> yeah, I know. But those were a few things that I thought um, were your your people would find your people, your listeners uh, would find very interesting um, and trying to get that information out. Um, and then, um, so yeah. 
Yeah, no, that was a lot. Um, so just to recap, the main things were uh, hop latent viroid is uh, being found in positive in roots when leaves are testing uh, negative. So we actually should be looking at roots, uh, which has a whole bunch of implications in media and other other things. Um, you're seeing a variety of viruses in hemp and cannabis beyond, you know, ones that we've necessarily heard of even, um, and they seem to be spreading. And then uh, let's see, what else did we talk about here? Uh, the research you just mentioned around um, from was it Olivia? Oh, which one for the Olivia Carter? She's doing the like the the genome on the hemp recipe mite and actually looking at their life cycle. And that certain cultivars are more susceptible to a particular pest than others, which we see in facilities all the time. So that makes a lot of sense. That's good to see that yeah. played out. Um, was there any other at least research related stuff that I missed? And sort of I think those are the highlights I brought okay. to you again I took a you know like a whole notebook full of especially the disease stuff but again I you know not so much a disease person again the the, the main disease people you know again um, Zamir up at Simon Fraser and then Jana Beckerman at Purdue those are two of the people like leading the charge and for following people and you know don't just you can't just email these people with you know i've got one plant what's wrong with you know these guys are researchers that are super busy um working on stuff but it's definitely worth keeping an eye on them and read what they're publishing and if you get a chance to hear them speak um it's definitely um worth worth doing um, I'm actually, I got it. Yeah. You can follow people on Google scholar and, um, you'll receive alerts or emails every time someone cites one of their research, um, papers or when they come out with a new paper. Um, that's something I do with a few researchers that I really like. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping I'm um, going to be speaking in February, I think February, maybe January. I don't know. January, February, I'm going to be speaking up in British Columbia and I've got to email Zamir because I'm hoping he and I can catch up on some stuff together because um, uh, he's just, he's a great guy. He's, he's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I appreciate all the work he's doing and making the research very usable, applied work for cannabis growers. Again, I feel bad for the U S researchers because their hands are tied uh, for working in cannabis and have these such narrow parameters they have to work in. But again, that doesn't mean they're not producing good research. And again, with this research, you know, it takes years to get the stuff published. So the research is coming. Um, it's just going to take a bit longer to get a lot of this out, out there. So. Sure. Sure. And then, uh, lastly, before we sign off, I want to, um, Give a shout out to Catchmaster and talk a little bit about your poster. Uh, it's for those of you that can get to see the video here. I think we'll, we'll probably put it up on YouTube. Um, you can actually see the poster that Suzanne framed in the background. It's on both of our Instagram pages. Uh, we've taken pictures of it, just kind of highlighting it. But um, hopefully, those will be made visit available here soon. I haven't. 
I have an email into Catchmaster to find out how they're going to distribute this poster out to growers. But they make um, monitoring cards, sticky yellow sticky cards. They make blue cards. They make a variety of products uh, for pest control, ranging from insects, rodents, live animal traps, a whole bunch of things. Um, and uh, they, they, they make good they make good sticky cards. Do you want to talk a little bit about that or a little about the poster? Well, the idea of the poster was to help identify what things that are stuck on sticky cards look like. Um, I spend a lot of time um, looking at sticky cards and sometimes because insects fall in weird positions, it can be, it can be hard to identify them. And so on this poster, we tried, I tried to break it down to good things, bad things, and indifferent things, which is kind of hard to do because I do have mites as bad because typically mites are generally, um, generally bad, but um, sometimes, you know, there can be beneficial mites, but typically we don't find beneficial mites on sticky cards. Not to say you can't, but generally we don't. Um, so, um, that's where they have different color rings where the green are good, red is bad, and then blue, like with uh, Kalimbala, Springtails, you know, they're kind of indifferent. Um, and it's not something you have to worry about, but they're not what I'd consider beneficial as in beneficial in the, the meat eating capacity on your plant. And so it's just a quick guide um, to some of the basic things you find out there. Um, and yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's a really cool poster. Um, I'm looking forward to getting one. I'm hoping I can get them in. And then I think I talked to Catchmaster about sending them out to growers. Um, we're getting soil through us, for example, as a way to get them out to people. Um, but we'll, when we have more information about how people, they're going to be distributed, we'll definitely I'll let listeners know because it is really cool to see, you know, the, the kinds of things that would end up on your sticky card in a facility. Um, actual photos of them versus you know having to go online and guess and things like that and stuff can get mislabeled so this one was made by suzanne so we know that all the everything's identified and photographed correctly um yeah and it's just a nice resource for folks one thing i regret not putting on there was a piece of peat moss because i've seen a lot of times i'm like oh is that a thrips nope piece of peat moss because peat moss fibers can look an awful lot like uh thrips on sticky cards and also perlite can look like white flies um I've uh, had that happen a few Hmm. times where you just have to get in there and look. But typically what I do with my sticky cards from growers is I bring them home with me and then I put them under uh, my microscope and just scan across them so I don't miss anything Um, because you really want to check them thoroughly for what's going on. Um, Yeah, and so you... I assume, though, with a dino light or a good loop, you can pretty much identify everything pretty effectively. You can tell if it's a thrips or an aphid, but I just had a situation where in the greenhouse, when I quick looked at it, I thought it was soybean thrips. But then when I got it back and looked at it under a scope, I'm like, "Mm, nope, that's not a soybean thrips. And I'm pretty sure it's a bean thrips. Um, But you can't with a lens out in the greenhouse. It can be hard to tell them apart. So that's, again, why I kind of do it. I go over it with higher magnification um, under my equipment. How important though is that to a grower? I know that like for you, you want to identify the particular species, but if, if we can narrow it down to a family, you know, if we can say we know it's thrips, do we really need, can you give me an example of why, a real world example of why I would need to know the particular species of thrips versus just knowing that it's a thrips? Well, 
not all thrips species pupate in the soil. So if it is a non-soil pupating thrips, nematodes are not going to help you in your pest management program, uh, like echinothrips. Uh, nematodes do not help control echinothrips. And also uh, predatory mites really cannot control an echinothrips population. If you have echinothrips, um, you pretty much have to spray for them. Uh, you know, soaps, oils, microbials do work, but mites and nematodes aren't. Where with like onion thrips, nematodes work really well, and so do um, the predatory mites. This thing with soybean thrips, I I find soybean thrips regularly dotted throughout cannabis facilities, but I still don't really know if they're blowing in or if they're reproducing, but they really don't cause damage. But this bean thrips, it's a calliothrips species um, that I've seen become devastating to outdoor cannabis in California. Um, it's not really on this part of the United States. So it's a little concerning to find it in a greenhouse over here. My guess is it came in genetics from the West Coast. It's now inside of a greenhouse. The question is, is it going to become economically important um, in this facility or on the East Coast where it's in an indoor and protected environment. And that's why it's important to know because if it's a soybean thrips, eh, we're not going to do anything different. The bean thrips, man, we got to watch that close. Um, so it does make a difference on how much damage the different thrips species can do to cannabis and also how you manage it. Okay, so it, you could, in the facility, you could be saving a ton of labor or wasting your money just by not getting a proper identification. Your application rates may be off, you're yep. maybe using the wrong product. Okay, so you gave a very good example of why we need to identify the species. Yeah. Okay. And when I go up to BC um, in January, February, again, I, I'm gonna try to get my calendar updated. Um, I think I'm gonna be doing a, like a Thrips Taxonomy ID talk there, talking about the main Thrips um, and how you tell them apart for where growers can do that. Um, not making it overcomplicated, oh, but making it making it understandable enough for growers um, to be able to, to, to help make decisions on management. Um, I know I can be like, I don't know, I'm gonna find a polite word for myself, but the being the queen of a jerk about always wanting to know what species it is and how I think it's so important. And, you know, for some things, Western flower thrips, onion thrips on cannabis, you know, the, the, does it make a difference in management on those two? Not necessarily, but it's important to be accurate, um, on those things. Um, and I, th you know, even though management's the same, you know, what does it matter if you didn't identify it right? Well, it matters because you need to be accurate. I mean, that's just, Part of my job is to be accurate and not guess. And there's too much guessing and bad information going around um, on this stuff. I'm sorry, I just got a kitten on my lap. This is Agatha, oh, who is being very difficult. Hi, Tad. Oh, very cute. I know. She's been, <laughs> I. she jumped that five-foot cardboard box and got in here. Well, it's good to see her on the show. Yes. So. Um, well, I think that's all my questions for today. Thank you so much 
for your time. Um, I know we covered a lot and jumped around a lot, but I, I thought that was really interesting. Oh, yeah, that's um, and I learned. A few I things, kind of so thank wish you. you were in my pocket at that meeting, Tad, because you would have found it really interesting. <laughs> but we'll, we'll pester Zamir yeah. and get him on your show. And again, he can go into okay. much greater depth about his work. You know, I, there's no way I can begin to do justice to his work because I, you know, I like speaking more about my experiences and my work and I can go more in depth just repeating other people's research, you know, it's, it's not always the best way to go. And I think it's best to get it direct from the source. So we'll work on getting Zamir and he can talk a lot more, um, on that stuff. Um, yeah, I think we do need to cover viruses and, and viroids in more depth because it is becoming more of a more of an issue in cannabis. Absolutely. Yes. So I think that'd be great. Yes. But I appreciate you having me again, Tad. I always love doing this with you. And uh, yeah, well, you always seem to come across new information and stuff. And pest management is just such a challenge. It's one of those things that's always evolving. And uh, so I think we do need to do regular shows on, you know, IPM related topics. So I, I think that's great. I appreciate it. Yes. So, and now it's almost officially the beginning of my candy making season. So yay. <laughs> so right on. Okay. Well, thank you so much and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. And I know we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Dad. That was Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. If you like the podcast, please leave us a rating and review and give us a follow on Instagram. And don't forget, at Kiss Organics, we have a wider range of products we offer on our website, ranging from soils, amendments, beneficial insects, sticky cards, soil testing analysis, and consulting. I also recently added a Patreon for folks interested in supporting the podcast directly. And lastly, you can sign up for our newsletter on our website homepage to stay up to date on the latest research and information. Thanks for listening.